between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the honor of being joined by Jacob Alvarez. Jacob is an amateur mycologist focused on dialing in cultivation methods for Fistulina hepatica, the beefsteak fungus. He started the Beefsteak Culture Collection Project last year in 2020 and has been collecting samples of the mushrooms since early 2019. In May of 2020, he made a significant breakthrough and successfully cultivated the first ever photo-documented beefsteak mushroom grow on a hardwood bag in the U.S. He's based out of southern New Jersey where he owns and operates his farm, Garden State Mushrooms. At the farm, he grows a wide variety of different gourmet mushrooms and continues his research figuring out better beefsteak cultivation methods. Beefsteak mushrooms are an intriguing mushroom that can be eaten raw, they resemble meat in appearance, and they even bleed. The cultivation of the beefsteak mushroom can add tremendous value to the mushroom market for small mushroom farms, and Jacob passionately believes the time to grow this mushroom is now. I'm excited to hear insights as to how to cultivate this mushroom and maybe be inspired on how to not give up on ideas even when things can go very, very wrong. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I can't even put in the words how stoked I was when you reached out about um, having me on to talk about this. Yeah, I really like what you do with the Mushroom Hour. You had my buddy Tug on before, a bunch of different people that I know, and just a great resource for people in mycology. And I'm hoping that this conversation can inspire some people to maybe grow some beef sticks. Man, I am super honored to add you to the list. I saw your work. It was actually only this past year that I found my first ever beefsteak in the wild. Uh, It was a huge, beautiful beefsteak mushroom, and I had to research like what to do with it. And that's actually where I stumbled on your work, and I was just blown away because I didn't think this mushroom could be cultivated, and here was this wizard doing just that. So yeah, I'm excited to get into it all, man. But like I like to do with all my guests, let's start off with how you really like discovered mushrooms, kind of how you got on your path. And you can just highlight key events or give us the whole story, whatever you want to do, uh, but just how you got on your path of working with fungi and mushrooms. Totally. So I was never really into mushrooms most of my life, which is pretty ironic. Um, it was only within like the last seven years I was really like into it. The way I got, got started commercially cultivating is we live really close to Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. We live about an hour and a half. And I don't know if you're aware of Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, but they produce like 60% of the USA volume. So I was doing a lot of traveling out there and just noticed something going on out here that wasn't Portobello's. 
Um, I knew about the portobello as a whole Garicus thing, but um, I started finding other mushrooms like piapinos and lion's mane. That was the first time I've ever seen that. And I was confused as to why it wasn't available in Southern Jersey when it's only an hour and a half away. So it kind of got me really intrigued about, well, there's all these mushrooms I don't know about. Why aren't they grown here and why does no one do it? And that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of, well, I'm going to be the guy in Southern New Jersey that introduces all these specialty mushrooms to people that they're not going to know what they are, but we're going to build that market and connect people to that. That's kind of what got me started was just being blown away that portobellos wasn't the end because I I never really liked portobellos or anything. I never really liked mushrooms at all. Um, Then I started eating some lion's mane and the piapino and the maitake. And I was like, oh, this is something different. And uh, that's kind of how it started. I think a lot of people find that someone I was just talking to said, when people tell me they don't like mushrooms, you have to say, no, you don't like agaricus. You don't like whatever. (laughs) Yeah. You don't like whatever you've been trying in the store. Mm -hmm. You need to see what mushrooms are all about. So you had that moment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're right near the mushroom capital of the world or mushroom capital of the United States that didn't click until now. Well then I guess why beefsteak? Because you're talking about cultivating lion's mane, piapino. Those are gourmet Mm -hmm. mushrooms that people grow. But why did you decide to try to grow fistulina, or maybe it's fistulina, hepatica, the beefsteak fungus? What was it that stood out to you as why you needed to grow it? So yeah, there's two stories there actually. So um, we could talk about the one I discovered it part first. Yes. That'll lead into some irony um, as to why I'm so obsessed with it. So the first time I ever found wild mushrooms, I was cutting my grandmother's grass. And um, I would do that every other week. And she lives in a really piney mixed oak area. And I found a patch of chanterelles. I was like, I think these are those, but I'm not sure. And um, I found some black trumpets. And I'm like, okay, I think these are black trumpets. And then she literally has like every amazing species of wild mushroom in her. I was going to say her yard is incredible. Yeah. Oh, it's it's incredible. I'm like baskets full. I'd probably pick like seven pounds of black trumpets just uh, from her driveway. It's really cool. So I went out there with my brother, my girlfriend, and we were driving around. And this is the first time we ever found chicken of the woods. We pull into her road and big, bright chicken of the woods. I'm like, wow. And we pick it. And we keep driving up the street. And my brother's like, what is that? Like, what do you mean? I didn't even see it. So there's like a pink little blob growing out of that tree. I, was, I don't know. I didn't know anything about mushrooms at the time. All I knew about chicken of the woods, the chanterelles and the black trumpets. So he goes and picks it and he's looking it up. He's like, is it beefsteak mushroom? This is awesome. Let's cook it. And I was like, eh, who cares? I want to go pick black trumpets. <laughs> and I just like disregarded it. Didn't care. And I thought it was weird. And you know, I looked it up, it said it could be sour, and it was like not as highly sought after as the black trumpets or stuff. So I kind of was just like, eh, who cares, man? Let's go pick some black trumpets. So that's why I think there's some irony to this story here of at my very start, really disregarded the mushroom the first time I found it. It was like, who really wants this sour, weird looking, meaty mushroom that bleeds? It's kind of weird. But all of that is what makes it great. That is actually the key to your obsession. Yeah, so now we can lead into why beefsteaks, right? So I think it could be the most valuable specialty mushroom on the market for small farmers. And that's a crazy claim. But I really think it could yeah. be because it's a mushroom that you could sell to fine dining restaurants for a premium. And they can use small amounts of it and sell it at a premium and everyone wins. That's kind of why I became obsessed with it as a way for it to economically benefit the smaller farmers. Because I have a pretty mid-level size farm. 
we grow several hundreds of pounds of mushrooms and we're still finding problems breaking into the market. It's hard to get big restaurant accounts. It's hard to really get consistent sales. And I know a lot of other smaller farmers are dealing with the same type of problem of um, the barrier to entry into the market is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think that this lowers the barrier to entry into the market because this is something no one else is growing. So if we can really establish this market of smaller farmers, now we really have something that really no one else has. That's kind of why I'm obsessed with this because I see it as being something that can really flip the industry in a crazy way. How is the beefsteak used culinarily? You know, when we're talking about fine dining or restaurants, do you think this is something that restaurant accounts would be like, would jump at, would be super I eager think to put they on their would, menu? I think as soon as I have this figured out at a larger scale, be perpetually sold out. I have a list personally of restaurants as far as Philadelphia, Georgia, North Carolina. I have a lot of people that found me off the internet or just saying, hey, I want a six pound box. How do I get this? How do I get that? Wow. I think selling it is going to be the least hard part. I think figuring out how to get the yields higher, taking the information that I have now and somebody um, expanding on that and we uh, increase the yields to something um, economical because my first yield was six ounces. And even that, in my opinion, is profitable. So it's a half pound. Restaurants aren't serving much of it, maybe an ounce, two ounces, a couple pieces at a time. That's how we served at the restaurant last year in Philadelphia. It was a raw application. It was a sliced and liquid seasoned and eaten like that. And it's delicious. Everyone loved it. Something cool and unique. So here's this amazing exotic mushroom that can only be wild foraged, has some exactly. amazing dining applications. So then how did you start your search? Because obviously you want to find the right strain, basically the right specimen mm -hmm. to start with. You're going to start into commercial cultivation. So when did that start, this task of like sourcing the right beefsteak strain? So August 2019, I probably found five of them. And one of those five was growing on an old rotting stump. Most of the time we're finding them on standing oaks. They're probably dying or diseased or it's usually we're usually like two tiny oak trees and one's like dead on the right or left. And it's usually just killing a tree. That's how we're finding it. But the one that I found was growing off of decomposing stump. And that's the one that actually fruited is one growing on decomposing stump. So let's fast forward to 2020. I put the word out to everyone. I said, hey, I have five cultures from 2019 that I think are good because I did all this research in 2019 with growing them. And I'd make like 50 bags at a time, 50 bags at a time. And um, it would just pin like crazy. And I never understood what was going on. It just... It pinned, nothing happened. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. I have 50 bags of just pins. Didn't oh, understand man. what was going on. I just couldn't wrap my brain around it. Then I had one bag, fortunately, which was like in a darker part of the room. It did a little bit better. And that one like started to form a poor surface in my grow room, but then aborted. And that was kind of the peak of 2019's collection and experiments was just like bags of masses of pins like the entire bag. So fast forward to 2020, um, walking the woods with uh, Tug, who one of the people he had on before, great friend of mine. We do a lot of foraging and business together. We were doing some foraging for all different types of stuff. We have this super like secluded area right down the street from my farm, which is huge. And there's like wild blueberries, black trumpets, all this crazy stuff. So we're walking around and I look at the floor and I'm like, 
think that's a beefsteak. And it was really old, like so old that if you don't know what they are, it just looked like an old um, rotted something. But I pick it up and I just like scream in excitement, beefsteak. And he looks back, he's like, <laughs> what is that? And I'm like, dude, it's a beefsteak mushroom. So that led to finding 50 pounds of that mushroom right in that wood oh line God. throughout the season, multiple times. Like we constantly went in there pulling out mushrooms, pulling out mushrooms, pulling out mushrooms. I put on Instagram, hey, I have a spot where I'm finding a lot of these. If you've ever seen this, please send me a sample. I've gotten samples from Pennsylvania. Some people in New York have samples for me. Um, it just went everywhere. I even had people from like Austria hit me up for um, beefsteaks, Brazil. It really just went crazy. And like it took on a world of its own and people really got behind it. And were like, hey, I have samples for you. I have samples for you. Next thing I had like 50 samples of this mushroom. And uh, yeah, I'm down to about seven that work out of those 50. But that's the power of the amateur community, right? People pick this it's up insane. online. It's great. They're suddenly flooding you with samples. <laughs> now you have it. this like bag of genetic diversity to pick your strain from that you wouldn't have had. Even, you know, even in that area where you got 50 pounds, mm-hmm. you could never hope to have the same diversity as all these people sending you in samples. And actually to take a step back, Tell us what you know about beefsteak in terms of its physiology, life cycle, ecology, habitat, all that good stuff. You know, will give us the basics of, of beefsteak. So for me, not like the sciencey guy, like to break down the features of the mushroom and all that. I'm more of just like a right. how do I put this? I'm the guy that knows what to look for and I just clone it in the lab. I'm known for like making really good clones and doing clone work. So that's why I tried to take on this project. But I could say is that if you can find oaks, you're going to find beefsteaks because where we're at in New Jersey, it's all oaks. It's all oaks. Like literally it's pine barony in the pine barrens, but other than that, it's all oaks, pin oak, willow oak, white oak. We don't really have a lot of red oak, but all the different species of oak trees are really good. They're usually going to be at the base of the tree, typically. They're usually not a mushroom that grows off like a shelf, usually at the base of a tree. You can find them anywhere from single fruitings or like flushes of five or so. The most I ever found on a tree was nine. And it was like a stack of like beefsteak pancakes. It was cool. (laughs) There was nine of them just like clustered in and stacked up. The season starts here around late August. That's the peak of it is like late August. You can start finding them, you know, mid-August, but it's peak late August, and that'll last until late September. Are they wood decayers? Is that what they're uh, is that what they're doing to the oak trees? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they're parasites. That's like what the main function of them is because I've heard a lot of people express confusion of how is this mushroom fruiting off of a hardwood bag? I thought it acted as a parasite. And it does typically. That's why I said earlier that the 2019 sample I've had, I think, was acting as a saprobe because it was growing on decomposed oak stump and not a living oak tree so i don't think it's a hard mushroom to find i I really don't it's supposed to be rare but um it really likes any type of oak tree not completely dead that's where you're gonna find like chicken of the woods the ones that look a little more like they're done but um yeah if you could find one that's looking a little weak any of those oaks that i named pretty sure and I'm sure it's the kind of thing, once you find it a couple times, you start getting the feel for the habitat. Just one of those things out foraging. That is you know, the weirdest okay, thing. Okay, I'll probably find beefsteak mm-hmm. here, yeah. That is the weirdest thing. Yeah, if anyone's ever found them, I, I always like open to take people out. So if anyone listening to this 
I've never found them. Let me know and we'll go out. Uh, I took one of my friends, Raymond, out from Ohio who never found one. And we walked out of the woods with 10 pounds. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Jacob is dialed into the beefsteak. So then fast forwarding us again. So you started the culture collection project. People are sending you in cultures worldwide. What were the steps you took then in cultivating? And maybe this is something that started even back in 2019 mm -hmm. with those experiments. But as much as you want to reveal about that cultivation process, details like substrate, and what you've learned mm -hmm. about how they respond to light, nutrients, all that kind of thing. There's a lot of different stories in that question, I could say. So there's a lot of people involved too. So basically, I kind of made like the gladiator battle of cultures, right? I was very cutthroat in the way I evaluated these things. Beefsteaks are really prone to bacterial contain, especially from wild cloning. That's usually the problem you run into. And even with cultivating it, it's just, um, I've talked to other people about it and they're like, every time I've cloned it, same thing. So it's just prone to that. The same way, I guess, like kings are prone to bacterial blocks and stuff like that. What I started doing was just using simple substrate or simple agar recipes, nothing fancy because you need a baseline. You don't want to start with like fancy stuff and go from there. So I kind of right. just, you know, just normal agar just either malt or PDA, the potato dextrose, and just ran everything like that really simply. And out of those, I think I ended with, I had like 45 samples. The ones that didn't take off, I cut them out of the cycle. I didn't even bother to try and, well, what additive will help? It didn't matter. I only kept the ones that went. And we're down to like seven that are really, really good. And the reason I know they're good is because they pin on agar which is a test that you can do to see if it even is worth the time because some don't pin on agar. Maybe I'm dead wrong about this guess, theory, hypothesis, whatever. But in my opinion, they are so responsive to light that if you have a culture that's not pinning on agar, it's not going to fruit because I have 45 samples, only seven of them respond to light. And that OG culture is insanely sensitive to light. It was only recently back in like February when I had stuff in uh, incubation for that May harvest that I paired that together. I was looking at old pictures and I'm like, why are these just pinning like crazy? And I thought of cordyceps and I'm like, cordyceps are extremely responsive to light and you have to dark incubate them. What if you have to dark incubate this? So I kind of just made a bunch of bags and I threw them in the room and I'm like, if these grow, they grow cool. I'm not going to check on them for two to three weeks. And if they're contaminated, I don't care. I'm not even going to look at it. So we <laughs> just started making, yep, keep them in the dark. And that's the best thing that you could do is you just keep them in the dark. Yeah, simple agar recipes, nothing crazy. We threw a little bit of like hardwood fuel pellets in agar before, but nothing crazy. The mushroom, like once I started talking more about it, it's, people are going to be like, really? <laughs> it's process oriented. It's really a process oriented mushroom that has nothing, in my opinion, to do with substrate. Um, it has to do with genetics and your process. So grains, we used rye, which is a slow colonizer, but it works well. Right now we're using millet and sorghum. Uh, millet we're cutting out because the price of millet is astronomical now. Um, oh, if, anyone, yeah, if anyone listening to this is in the growing mushroom industry, they know that millet costs an arm and a leg now. So sorghum and rye. I mentioned sorghum, I have to mention uh, Courtney from Michael Op out of Minnesota. He's been really key in this project. 
figuring everything out. He's the one that figured out you add a little bit of hardwood into a liquid culture and it's extremely, the growth is extreme. And it, it, it sounds nuts because it's like, well, don't you have to suck the culture out and you have wood going in the syringe? It's like, yeah, that is a problem, but we're going, <laughs> we're, we're in the experimental phase of things now. We're just trying to figure out what works, not what works well, what yeah. works easy. So yeah, um, he's produced, uh, in my opinion, the most spawn of this mushroom in America ever. I like making claims like this because they're controversial and crazy, but I think they're true and they hold water. This guy's made so much spawn for me, it's unbelievable. I can't even put a number on it, but we've been cracking at this thing for so long. It's been about eight months together that we've been collaborating on this, and we found out a lot of stuff that doesn't work. They hate Master's Mix. Mm. It just doesn't work. <laughs> like It just doesn't work. Like Master's Mix works on like everything. Not everything, but a majority of stuff. And yeah, it doesn't work on that. It doesn't like oat brand. It doesn't like certain brands. It likes the wheat brand. That's what I'm saying. It's a really simple substrate. It's hardwood and wheat brand that it likes. Not at high ratios. And that's what we really figured out. I was going to say, I was waiting for some like mystery spawn or substrate that, so, and it's really simple. Yeah, It is really simple. The, the spawn rate, the higher the spawn rate, the faster colonization. Low spawn rate is not good for this mushroom, I will say that. So if you do batch this mushroom, you do have to go heavy on the spawn. And we're trying to figure out, right, where we're at now is what do we have to increase to raise the spawn? Or what do we have to increase to decrease the spawn? So does the brand have to go up and the spawn come down? Does the We're just trying to figure out, is it a different type of uh, maybe a beet pulp or something else that we could do and decrease the spawn because we're using a pretty high spawn rate to get these results. And when you say spawn rate, that means the amount of spawn you actually have to put on your fruiting substrate yep. to get something to work. Okay, so obviously... From the economics, you want to minimize the amount of spawn you're using so you can exactly. take a spawn jar and make as and many actual fruiting mm -hmm. blocks as possible. Exactly. And most of the times you can make quite a bit of um, fruiting blocks from, let's say, like a six-pound bag of spawn. But with this mushroom, you really can't make that many bags. So that's, wow, really that's, that's what we're trying to figure out because if we can figure out this next step, now it's basically in the commercial market. I mean, I don't think we're really that far away. I've been at this for about 18 months and already harvested six ounces. So I think another 18 months, it won't be an issue to harvest 16 ounces or eight ounces or something like that. And especially, you know, people listening to this, if I say something that causes them to click and they're like, oh, what? And then who knows what's going to happen once people hear this? They're like, oh, it's really that simple? Like maybe there's someone out there who's trying all these crazy things and it's really just simple. You know, maybe this will help simplify the mystery and I still can't believe it. <laughs> well, what was really cool to me before the interview, you said you wanted to try to make this, you know, something where you're kind of coming open source with what you've done, what you figured out about the mushroom. So in looking through this, I know you said you made some bold claims there, but I've never heard of anyone really trying to work with beefsteak as a cultivated mushroom. In your research and looking through this, all the stories, I'm sure you have people coming out of the woodwork to tell you about their experience with it. Has this been something that's done before? Did you stumble upon the works of someone, like maybe a research paper or a book or something where someone's really gone in on this mushroom? Or at least for what you found, have you guys been kind of pioneering a lot of the work and discovering through experience? 
So from what I understand, there's like three claims, mine excluded. So the first claim is it's been done before. It just hasn't been photo documented. And it's in research papers and there are older mycologists alive that don't care about documenting this stuff. And it, that's why it's not known. Um, that's one okay. thing I heard. The other thing I've heard is it's grown in the UK on a small scale, which I could get back to that, but I don't believe that because I spent like three months trying to source spawn and fruiting bags from the UK, offering farms tens of thousands of dollars, like a lot of money. Um, and they didn't take me up on that offer, so I don't believe them. And the last person is um, Ryan from Trustful Fungi, his buddy in Poland, Christoph. He's done it. He does it like casually from what I understand. He sent me a picture, when was it, like a couple months ago, and it looked awesome. His looked a lot more like bloody and meaty, and he's doing it. A lot smaller of a yield, it seems, maybe like mm. a two or three ounce yield. It was a really small mushroom, but um, yeah, he's definitely doing it, but that's in Poland. Uh, my claim specifically, USA first on a hardwood bag that is documented. Yeah, right. so from what I understand, this is a pioneering moment for things. And then what size are you doing the research in now? Because you talked about the early, you know, 50 bag runs you were doing. So we kind of walked through the culture collection process. We walked through the spawn process. And then now how many like bags are you ending up working with? And then what questions, I mean, what questions <laughs> are you looking at? Because, well, just because you've got, you know, you've got, a six ounce yield now. Mm -hmm. So I'd imagine you're trying to find out, you already talked about, it, you're trying to find out how can you decrease the amount of spawn exactly. needed for a block. I decrease would imagine yield. you're trying to increase yield, mm -hmm. increase maybe meatiness or bloodiness. Exactly. Cause now we can focus on traits and that's where 2021 beefsteak project is. And I'll get to that. Remind me on that. Remind okay. me about 2021 beefsteak project, which is about yeah. selecting traits, but back to where this is going now. So this work is exciting. My friends, Brian, Tyler, they own Micropolitan out of uh, Philadelphia, PA. I just got done talking to them. We were talking maybe like a month ago about using their farm as a way to propel the research and development for this project. And their autoclave is pretty significant. We can run quite a bit of bags. So the sky's the limit at this point. We can run batches of 20 or we can run batches of 100. It's really what we want to do at this point, And that should be starting up in a few weeks. Um, as they wind down uh, with their summer production, they're going to pick up this R&D for me. And we're really going to swing the hammer at this thing and test everything and really try and dial that in. So that's that's the scale it's at now is it's going from I spent a lot of money, you know, wasting money on trying to figure it out, throwing out sets of 60 Petri dishes, 50 bags. And now it's like, OK, we kind of have a baseline of what works. We're going to run that in mass and we're going to run smaller sets and tweak that until we figure out a better solution for what we're currently working with. So, yeah, they're going to be pretty instrumental in um, creating this market and they share the same enthusiasm about it. So it's really cool. We just get to nerd out and figure this out. Oh, man, that's really exciting. And have you guys isolated it down to pretty much one strain that is like the best strain it's the most responsive from all the strains that you were getting sent i think it's the one that i have i think it's the first one from 2019 and that's oh, no the weird way. part yeah and that's the weird part i've gotten clones in that don't fruit or just don't pin or con is very slow and 
I have two other ones that are like in contention with the OG, which is number 15, which is 18 ounce samples. 18 ounce mushroom is the biggest beefsteak I found all season. Just an absolute slab of meat on a tree. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, number 15 and 24 are looking pretty promising on agar. They form like the craziest pins. Like they want to grow. And I've had some issues in the grow room with them. Um, forming like huge blobs, but then like messing up the conditions and a lot of failure is what I'm saying. There's a lot of failure behind this project that I don't display because right. that's not the point. The point is to show why what's, would you? what's going right, you know, and what's what's working out. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff that not working out, but those three seem to be the best out of all of them. And whenever we're talking about cultivation and testing strains, you get to this thing about cloning. So obviously you're working with clones in the wild has there been any introduction of like reproducing spores, anything like that, or is it strictly working with clones at this point? So that's where it gets interesting, right? I'm a tissue culture guy. Um, I don't like working with spores. I don't claim myself to be like a sciencey guy. I don't do microscope stuff or anything like that. I just do the tissue cloning. I'm wanting to get into the spore collecting process to pass that on to somebody and um that could happen this year in the 2021 project i just felt like it's better suited for me to focus on the tissue cloning aspect of things um there's all types of weird theories out there i've had people dm me and they're like are you cloning the tissue i heard you have to clone the wood and i was like that's strange i don't know why i'd have to clone the wood but okay so apparently there's like processes that say you have to clone the wood So I don't know if that's just misinformation or works for someone or what, but I've just been cloning, right? So you harvest the mushroom right off the tree, rip it in half, and where the tube surface meets the top surface, there's a triangle. It's a perfect triangle. And you just take that out, and that usually works. If that doesn't work, then you just do the base. But they clone well. You get the bacterial contam, but they, they clone pretty well. To answer that question, heavy on the tissue cloning, but have an interest in collecting spores to pass it off to somebody into breeding that can really hammer away at that because I wouldn't even know where to begin. You know, I could, I could throw spores on agar, right. And do that. But that's kind of, I don't know. That's why I don't want to mess with it. <laughs> that's the reason I asked the question is because I know so little about that actual process of breeding Same. other than like the fundamental Same. concept of what you're trying to mm-hmm. get at. But I was thinking that would be because I know when you work with clones and you have clones on clones, sometimes they can they lose. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Over time. So I wondered if that was something you're worried about. Where I'm at and what I think is interesting is that now we have on the market, right? It's not being sold, but it's something that I do have and it could be sold is a cloned cultivated culture. So I cloned the beefsteak that grew. And as far as I know, that's a first. Um, most mushroom cultures on the market came cut from the wild, cloned in the lab, and sold. This one was off of a tree in the wild, cloned, grown, harvested off a hardwood bag, and then cloned. So I think this one might actually be designed a little better to grow indoors because it's always been indoors. On hardwood, it's been like, quote unquote, trained on that substrate. Yeah, like the memory or whatever is there, or we would think. And I have to know, like, have you gotten anyone, maybe in the academic sphere, other people in mycology? I mean, I know you've had a lot of collaborators along the way, but has anyone reached out to you about this project that you were just like, 
I don't know, blown away by or someone took an interest that you would have never expected about this project? Because it seems like really groundbreaking to me. I was shocked that you found out. I was like, holy, what the <laughs> heck? You found out? That's cool. But no, I mean, I don't think anyone knows, honestly. I don't think I have a big enough even social presence for people to even really know. I mean, there's a few people that are in the community that were like aware off of the post, but I don't know. I talked to like Fungi Mag, but they wanted me to write something up and I just, I'm trying to run my business. It's hard for me to do that. So yeah, <laughs> I, totally. I sent them an email and I said, Hey, I think this is the first time it's ever been done. And she's like, great, we'll feature you. And I'm like, I can't write the article, but now nah, no one's really reached out to me about it. Um, just chefs and restaurants are interested. They're like, what is this? It bleeds. <laughs> but no, I think it's really, in, in my opinion, it's kind of been like a underwhelming response to it. I thought it would be like, whoa, what is going on? And in the community, people are, have that way. But in general, it's like I talk to someone that doesn't know about mushrooms. They're like, okay. <laughs> so so Portobello. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no. This right, right. This is probably the first time it happened. And this could change the meat substitute industry and stuff like that. That was my <laughs> next thing is if you showed people the beefsteak, then I'm sure they'd be blown away. Oh, like, I did. Hey, you couldn't grow this before. I brought, it, I brought it to one of the biggest farms out in Pennsylvania. So I do some business with a pretty large farms out in Pennsylvania. And I brought it out to them to try and collaborate with them. And they just can't do it. They're too big. They're running this. They harvest so many mushrooms. They're not in the business of taking on creating a new industry. They don't need to. You know what I mean? They're selling 100,000 pounds a week. Why do you need to grow beefsteaks? So they were blown away. And that was crazy to me because that's a family that has a presence in Pennsylvania. Um forever man they started the portobello industry literally like started the portobello industry um and i brought it into them because i do business with them in their retail shop and i brought it in i was like have you ever seen this in all your years of growing mushrooms they're like no we have not but it's really cool it's bright pink that is awesome <laughs> so yeah i don't know I, this is the future my opinion yeah yeah well and have you found anything or have you thought about playing with applications of the mycelium. I know that's a contentious topic. I know a lot of people don't like to have anything to do with like mycelium as edible or medicinal or whatever. But have, have you found anything out about the mycelium? Have you tried to like cook it and eat with it? Does it have any of the same properties, anything like that? No, I haven't um, done anything with the mycelium yet. It's really slow growing. So it's kind of like hard precious, to venture yeah. off. Yeah, it's like gold. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff could take like three weeks on the fast end two weeks but typically if we're rocking three weeks we're happy we've pushed the limits we try and over incubate stuff sometimes to see how it goes so i had a conversation one time with st kyle from far west fungi and he was talking about um reishi cultivation how it takes like you know a lot of energy for that manifestation to come through you know that conch mushroom so do that conversation with him it kind of got me thinking of true when you see a fully colonized bag, it's fully white. Yeah, it's fully white, but is it really ready? You know what I mean? So I started right. practicing over incubation and letting it, uh, quote unquote, build the energy that it needs to shoot out the mushroom. Yeah, so no real mycelium use, just like using it for as much R&D as possible because it's just like gold at this point. I would like to get into producing the mycelium to sell to other growers. That's something that I would I would do for the uh, mycelium. We could batch stuff at Mycopolitan. If people want to get on our list, they could reach out to me, um, Instagram or 
somehow and go on my website, Garden State Mushrooms, and reach out to me through there, and I can sell you spawn. That's something I'm interested in doing because the spawn production part is very specific. You need dark incubation and stuff like that. And you've hinted at that process along the way, yeah, that you need the darkness. The whole Sounds like time. Dark. Oh, okay. Not indirect light, not but like nope. dark. Put it this way. If you have it in the dark and you check on it, throw it out. It's just going to wow. pin. It's just going to pin. It's just going to pin. It's going to pin halfway through colonization. And now, is that the same? So when you're transferring it from spawn to your actual hardwood block, mm-hmm. do you kind of have to do that in a dark room then? Or how does that process work? That process you could do normally, just break the spawn up and do your thing, but those got to stay in the dark. They the hardwood the blocks dark. do too. They have to be everything. Yeah, you don't want to have your um, your agar out because that'll pin. So you want to keep that in the dark. And then your spawn has to stay in the dark. And yeah, <laughs> everything has to be in the dark. <laughs> Insanely photosensitive. So then, so when you're deciding to fruit it, how are you, you making that call commit. when you pull it out? That's something that you're So that's testing, the fun part, right? This is the fun part. So my taki growing, right, is hard. Right. A lot of time you let it form the top of the bag and then take it out of your incubation, fruit it that way. So that's kind of the same approach I had to beefsteaks, right? Because I don't have a ton of successful maitake growers under my belt, but the ones I do were very specific. And um, it all depended on selecting the best pin. Uh, every single time it worked. So I kind of applied that same logic to this of just like, okay, so if you take these things out, they pin everywhere. Now it's really, you're just hoping to select the right one. You have to get it to pin in the dark. Just over incubate it. <laughs> That's all you got to do is over incubate it. You know, you see it and then you're like, oh, it's fully colonized. No, it's not. It doesn't have pins on it. It's not ready. <laughs> and needs to have pins on it. It's going to have these white pins right these tiny little white blobs and you want to wait until those get a decent size not too big right because if you don't take them out they're going to get green mold and they're going to die so you have to wait until a decent size i would say maybe like half the size of a dime maybe a dime not too big but a decent size they have to be noticeable pins yeah you have to be noticeable pins and then you cut out that one pin if you cut an x to free that pin the whole x will pin Cut the tiny hole out and only free that one mushroom because even though, right, you freed the one mushroom, it's still going to pin everywhere because of the light. So you're just poking that hole to give that one pin a chance to not abort. The other ones are going to abort and that one should grow. And that's kind of the process on that is you want it to pin in the dark by over incubating. You're taking your chance on selecting that right pin. There'll be hundreds yeah. of pins on there. You got to find the biggest, like, let's give that guy a chance, make a tiny hole. Ideally, you'll have a handful if you follow the dark incubation process right. Maybe you'll have five, but it will grow crazy. And then it starts to tempt you, right? Because you freed the ones, but then now you have bigger pins coming in. And you're like, oh, I right. should free those too. No, don't do that. Let the one grow. <laughs> Let them, it takes about three weeks for these mushrooms to go from pin to full. That's a long time. Yeah, That's that is like, a long time. It's honestly absurd if you think about it. You could harvest like three cycles of oysters in that same amount of time, basically. I, I see what you're saying now. This is a very process-oriented. Very, very, and I, very. Really, I really appreciate you, like maybe pun intended, but shining, shining the light <laughs> on the process, which involves a lot of darkness, really breaking down how like, 
and I'm sure you're playing with different substrates, especially mm -hmm. that hardwood mix, nutrient mix, all that. But it sounds like yeah, really simple. substrates and grow mediums people are used to is what works, but you really got to keep it in the dark, even to that level. Because I know a lot of people just with cultivating any mushroom, the point when pins form to actual fruiting is like a critical moment when oh, yeah, and a lot fast, of people typically. get confused and frustrated. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. It's typically so fast. Like with a yellow oyster, if you see pin on the side of yellow oyster within like five days you're picking a mushroom you're maybe second flush it and you pick more mushrooms in three weeks <laughs> when the beefsteak yeah. it takes three weeks to go from a white blob to a fanned out tube surface slab of meat gotta wait three weeks to get the slab of meat so then in 2021 you've teamed up with michaelpolitan yep i almost say michael pollen michaelpolitan <laughs> yep that Philly team in farm. philly so what's now on the plate for 2021? You know, are you getting into some of the variability traits, all that good stuff? Yeah, so that's what we're going to focus on this year, right, is there's a wood line. It's about 10, 15 minutes from my farm. That's the beefsteak headquarters, <laughs> honestly. Like, you can't walk there for more than a minute without finding one. Seriously. Like, it's every other tree. Insane. It's to the point where we only pick, like, one per tree. Because there's usually like three on a tree and we walk out of there at 10, 20 pounds. So the goal this year is I'm particularly interested in the ones that have jelly tops. And I don't know if that has anything to do with traits or if that has anything to do with conditions. Because a lot of the jelly ones are usually at the very base of a tree where a lot of humidity is trapped. So I wonder if growing the mushroom in a high humidity environment would naturally create the jelly you know, the ASMR videos people do and are like touching the jelly top of the beef and stuff. I've done them. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <I know>. nice. <laughs> yep. <laughs> They're super cool. So I'm interested in that because I think that just has like shock value and cool value to it. Um, so I'm trying to collect those. There's a picture on my Instagram of 72 different samples that I did. It's like a layout picture. The variability on there is insane. And there's specific ones in there that I would call like magenta, lavender, red, pink dark pink red they're like these crazy colors that i've only seen in this mushroom i mean i've seen them before but like in that mushroom it's like absurd to see something that eye-catching outside of like pink oysters so um i want to capture those um i want to see if cloning that if that has anything to do with it too i don't know if it's maybe the way the sun is shining on the mushroom is causing that or if it's the actual mushroom itself but we're going to figure it out this year so we're going to go after those three different colors the jelly tops and the big ones. I want anything over 18 ounces is interesting to me. That's the record right now, 18 ounces. Man, this is really exciting. And it is that big question of, you know, is it something strain specific? Is it a dial that you can turn mm -hmm. to cultivation? Exactly. So you're about to enter the most exciting part of this work. If we do this podcast again in a year, you're oh, going to know a whole yeah. lot more. I'm going to have, have five pound boxes of this stuff for sale in a year. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> My whole business depends on this, honestly. That's how I feel about it. That's where I'm transitioning. And that was a question I had is you're running, you hinted at the beginning how running a small scale or medium scale mushroom farm is very hard. It's hard. High it's capitalization hard. costs, hard it's to insane. sell. You have, you have a product that's short spoils. shelf life. Exactly. And then you're playing this game of what do I grow and do people want it? And they might want it one week and then you don't have it. And then you grow it the next week. They don't want it. And you're playing this game of whack-a-mole. And until you get to a certain volume that you can afford to do that, it's hard. Yeah. It's very hard. <laughs> and I mean, so how, what's it been like then 
to be doing this research pro- project where I'm imagining you're just paying out of pocket watching money yeah. go out the door. <laughs> Thousands. So I mean, what, how have you balanced that? You know, there's have no you balance. thought it? <laughs> there's no balance. No balance. It's stressful. It's so stressful. Yeah, man. Um, I just had a baby too. So that adds a really interesting. Congratulations, but man, I can't even imagine juggling all that. (laughs) Yeah. So um, my daughter just turned a year actually like a couple weeks ago. Yeah. She came during the peak of all this fun stuff. (laughs) So here you are, you have a, you have a new family, you have your own business. Oh, during the pandemic, by the way, in in March of 2020, I lost all my business, all of it, not, not all of it, 110% of it gone. (laughs) I mean, every, every mushroom cultivation oh, when story I, when is I one bought of a new like, farm too, or got a new farm. <laughs> every mushroom cultivation story is like trials and tribulations. Like, yeah. crazy. man, you just laid out something vivid. So what's that been like for you the past year? Oh, How have fun. you held the faith and kept this going? Oh, it's been fun, man. Um, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to feed people. That's really what it comes down to. Trying to feed people, keep them healthy. Um, my first real job, I guess you could say, I, I worked in agriculture before as a, um, like greenhouse manager, I would load up the box trucks and stuff uh, for flowers and stuff. So I worked there for a while. Out of school, I started working at Verizon. That was really corporate. It's so corporate. Um, I ran one of their stores and it was very corporate. Didn't like it. Didn't realize the world was that cut through. Um, and I was wanted out. Got out of that. And um, we discovered these. And that's kind of like what inspires me is to do something positive and not have to exist in a culture that's so sell, 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 new, 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 create something new. Your old stuff's inadequate. Who Like, it was so like, geez, like there was a guy, dude, he sold um, a lady a phone for her three-year-old or something. It was absurd. And he was proud of it. He was like, yeah, I got this lady to buy a tablet and a phone for a three-year-old. And there's nothing wrong with letting your three-year-old use a phone or tablet. But I just don't want to be involved in businesses that are predatory. Yeah. And then I rediscovered mushrooms uh, through some experiences. Yeah, and then I kind of just was like, yo, I just got to do this. This is all I want to do. It's it's something that there's no bad in it. I mean, the plastic production in gourmet mushrooms sucks. That's something. But, you know, for one minute, let's please not feel bad as small mushroom farmers or people pester small mushroom farmers when there are giant farms in Pennsylvania that their plastic waste in one week is your five-year plastic waste. I think on the spectrum of environmental problems, this is pretty low on the list. Yes. Uh, and I know a lot of people, a lot of people bring that up. You know, I just put something mm-hmm. on social media the other day for actually far West fungi that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the first, first comment was, what do they do with all the plastic bags? So definitely something I'm sure every mushroom cultivator oh, yeah, out totally. there is aware of and focused on. And as soon as there's a good solution that still produces beautiful mushrooms and everything, we're first I'm sure on everyone it. will, <laughs> yeah, everyone will adopt on it. it. In that vein, man, what is your advice for people who want to start mushroom cultivating? Because I know everyone, I was the same way. You get into mycology, you learn about cultivation, mm-hmm. you have your first grow blocks or you make your first spawn and you're like, that's it. I'm starting a mushroom farm. You have to figure out what you want. You had to look in the mirror. You had to have like a, a philosophical moment with yourself and say, do I like this because it sells for a lot of money? Or do I like this because of a lifestyle that this is going to give me? Because the lifestyle is going to give you is working to death. But you're going to have your free time. You're going to be able to have this relationship with this organism that you're keeping alive and they're keeping you alive. And you just get to be that middleman of the world. 
right? Because people don't understand mushrooms, but you get to be that person of explain to people that don't have the time to learn about mushrooms or they love mushrooms, but don't know that. And you can be that person that brightens their day with a factor, with a cool box or something like that. So you'll, you'll get your payoff through those type of moments. You're not going to buy a Lambo, stuff like that. Like there's a lot of people that think that you get rich from this and you can, I'm not saying you can't definitely make a lot of money from mushroom farming. But I think that when you're getting into this, you need to say, what am I doing this for? Because you lose a lot of money in the beginning, a lot, because mm-hmm. you have to set up your infrastructure. Right. You know, you have to figure out what you want, you know, and then you have to reverse engineer it and go backwards, right? You know, you, you got to get the customers first. Don't make the farm and then get the customers. Start developing that first. Start talking to people. See what the market wants. Don't put all this money, grow it, and then you're like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, do it very calculated, you know, because I didn't do it very calculated. That's what I'm saying all this. I just said, screw this. I went to Pennsylvania and I bought bags and I made my own bags and I went, <laughs> and I'm like 60 pounds of mushrooms. I'm making all my own bags. I have shelves of bags I made. I'm shipping in bags. I'm doing all this stuff at once. And it's a fast way to get burned out. You just got to do it very slow and calculated and develop your community around your company and have some, some morals and standards and create a culture, you know what I mean? Where people can learn about this through you and that's what I recommend, you know, just look at it for the long term of just like, this is a very hard industry to break into. There's like huge farms and there's us. So you just got to find your niche. You know, our niche right now is a CSA. And I recommend anyone getting into a small mushroom farming, make a CSA. I just made mine in December of last year. And I wish I would have did it two years ago. Tell us about that. Tell Yeah. Tell us, cause we talked a lot about that project. Tell us about Garden State Mycology you know, the CSA program and then products where people can find you all that good information. Cause I really want people to go out and support small mushroom farms wherever they are. But I know a big part is first knowing about your local mushroom farm. So tell us about Garden State Mycology. Yeah, we're out of South Jersey, um, right in Violin. We service all of New Jersey. That's our region. We do all of New Jersey and we do the bordering parts of like, you know, PA and like Delaware area. Uh, that's what we do. We grow a wide variety of mushrooms, like all different oysters, um, any oyster you can really think of, the lion's mane, shiitake, and stuff like that. Um, but our main thing is the CSA, right? So we offer two and a half pound boxes and five pound boxes on a every two week delivery schedule. And um, our members, they get their own logins, they can access our software, and they can custom make their boxes um, for whatever week, bi-weekly offerings we have. Um, we try to have at least three to five different mushrooms available every two weeks and we try and have 12 different varieties over the course of the whole program and then we try it's a little difficult sometimes to do this because we're balancing out the farming aspect but every other week we try and um, feature other small local businesses and other small farms uh, that we know like we featured our friend fungi john out of florida Uh, we carried some of his products um, cassandra uh, that has cognitive function Um, we carried some of her products so we really just use this program as a way to like connect people to this. We have conversations with our members about, you know, what do you like, what do you don't like? And we build that profile based off of that and put notes of, it's just like a really curated experience of like, you're getting the freshest mushrooms at the cheapest price on a set schedule. And you're going to learn some stuff along the way and maybe have the opportunity to buy some other niche products that you didn't know about. And that's really the basis of that program. That's why I said that anyone in small farming that is having problems getting sales, that's what you should do. Even if you started with 10 people, 
you know, who cares? You need to start with five people. You just got to start. We're, um, I would say, where are we at now? We're almost near 100 people. So, wow. Yeah. In two, in two programs. Our first program was 47. So that's what I'm saying. Like That's amazing. Definitely anyone listening to this, do this. <laughs> and it's direct to consumer, right? So obviously mm-hmm. you're going to have higher margins and everyone's got to ride that wave right now of mushroom totally. interest. More oh, people than huge. ever are interested. And so it if you can be huge. not only their fresh mushroom farmer, but also their line into mycology from someone who's experienced. One million percent. Perfect those people example. want that. I'm dropping off a box to a lady yesterday, right? I'm walking up the driveway and I'm like, no way. That's chicken of the woods. <laughs> she had white poor chicken of the woods at the base of her oak tree. And I knock on the door. I was like, I don't know if you have a chance to talk, but you want to walk over here? I'll show you. You can eat this. And she's like, really? And then she starts describing all these different mushrooms. I'm like, those are chanterelles. Those are maitake. Like she has all this stuff in her yard. She's been living there forever and Insane. doesn't know. So it's just like, yeah, that's that's the main purpose of the program is community you know and trying to get to that where people are getting their stuff locally and um, at the cheapest price because we sell these mushrooms so cheap like we sell them extremely cheap like we could sell them for more and make more money but the program for us has never been about making money it's been about lifestyle so you can get our mushrooms as those like eight bucks a pound it's nuts. <laughs> it's like which, giving which them away really, really cheap yeah i'm a really small cheap. farm man it's really cheap <laughs> You've just given some great other advice for any small mushroom farmers out there, anyone who wants to get into this. So where can people find Garden State Mycology? Where can people find you and your work? Because I know there are people listening that are resonating with what you're saying, You know, whether they want to learn more about cultivation or whether they want to learn more about the Beef State Project specifically. Uh, where can people contact you? They could either go on Instagram, which is Hacob, H-A-C-O-B underscore, that's me. Um, or Garden State Mushrooms on Instagram. That's also my farm. Or you could um, go on our website, GardenStateMushrooms.com. Those are really the three best avenues. Then you can get my email through there. And I even give you my phone number through the email. And we connect that way. Farmers markets really hasn't been a thing for us recently. Um, they're really unpredictable. So we're trying to eliminate those from our business model. So we're not going to be publicly really anywhere. But if people get in contact with us that way, could schedule a little farm visit and stuff like that. And, connect that way. So that's how I'd recommend. And then what is in the future for you? I mean, you've hinted at like, obviously the beefsteak project doing the variability of traits, all that, but like, is there a book coming out of this? Any big plans? And, and I'm, it doesn't have to be like, you know, immediate, immediate future, but mm-hmm. maybe some like vision you have of how the farm's going to transform or how this work with beefsteak is going to transform in the future. Yeah. I have a really crazy vision, right? So it's a really crazy vision. There's a lot that I have to cover to really articulate this vision. But, um, you know, mycelium grows, right? It starts to branch and branch and branch. And if you take a picture of mycelium day one, day three, day five, and you start to see the branches and branches going, that's how I see my CSA program, right? So I see over time these, because I, I have a big map in New Jersey on my farm of dots of where all of the members are. And I just see it just growing, colonizing the state. Of CSA members. That's that's what I see immediately. That's my immediate focus. We're going to build this program out to like 250 people. Um, we're going to stick with that. And then from there, that's when it comes into shutting down a lot of the existing farm and putting beef sticks in. We're going to grow the farm, grow it, grow it, grow it, grow it, and get to that capacity that we want and not deal with as many restaurants and only have the CSA program. And then we're going to transition to a beef steak farm 
because once I max out the current space that I'm in, I can transition into another space, right? I could use my current farm for the beefsteaks and then start up something else, some results. And that's kind of breaking it off into two different things, right? I'm going to have one farm, which is like shiitake, oysters, lion's mane, very easy stuff to grow. And then the next thing is going to be the beefsteak operation. And I have a bunch of what are like bunch of 10 by 12 areas. Um, I was already doing the calculations. I think it was like 96 pounds currently that I could harvest of beefsteaks based off of the yields I'm getting. And I think it's pretty significant right now. So yeah. if I can increase that, you know, double the yield, then it's 180 pounds. So that that's kind of the plan is to grow the CSA program because I really like what we're doing with this program. I think I think it's the funnest thing ever, man. Like people are so excited about it. like the mushroom man and stuff like that. And they're like <laughs> so stoked about it. I'm like, man, this is cool that people love mushrooms as much as I do. So that's that we're going to just triple down on that. And then we're going to really close down a lot of the hardworking stuff and collaborate with a lot more people. Maybe have Michael Potts and take over a lot of my production. Maybe have Michael Op, uh, Courtney out of Minnesota, take over a lot of my production and then only produce beef sticks. That's kind of where I'm heading. And talk about that a little bit. I, I mean, how important how important has it been for you to collaborate with other producers and outsource certain functions? Because I know people get excited and they want to go from like culture to spawn to final to fruiting. You can't. Okay, yeah, exactly. So I'll put it that. this way. I'll put it this way. I don't know many. I'm not saying there's none. I don't know many really large vertically integrated mushroom farms. A lot of them are... They're very, I guess, compartmentalized, I guess that's the word for it, right? So you yeah. have like a farm who does the spawn, and then you have a farm who does the mixing the spawn with the bags, and they sell the bags. And then, yeah, you got to you gotta step back, and you got to really see how this works out, you know what I mean? Because if you try and go from spore to finished mushroom with all the different varieties you plan to grow, that's a lot of different incubation parameters, a lot of different fruiting parameters. It's a lot of different things you're trying to take on at once and you're like three months away from a mental breakdown. Like a, that's how I started. I started out by going gung ho and just trying to grow as much stuff as possible. And then that's when I figured out that, oh, okay, there are other farms I could outsource to. And that's kind of my model now. Um, I have a farm out in Pennsylvania that I work with, uh, another farm that if I ever need fresh mushrooms, I could get them in instance. Then Michael Politan out of Philly, they do my unique stuff like the chestnuts and the black pearl. And then, yeah, Michael Op. So that is all about allies, man. I started out really not knowing anybody. Now I feel like I know everybody. It's a small world, man. Like we're all connected by like a few people and um, never doubt the power of the individual and just do it, you know, do it logically. Um, lay it out, talk to people that know more than you. A lot of people are going to ignore you, um, and that's okay. I, I've dealt with that when I first started. I've, hey, how do you do this? And they're not going to respond, you know, and even if you offer to pay, they might not, or it might be guarded information. So I would say don't take stuff like personally and, you know, offer to pay people for their time and what can you do for them and, and do that, and then you'll learn a lot more. Because, dude, I've, I've learned so much from my buddy Tug. Like, I met Tug through MycoFest, and, and I just bring him mushrooms, like, you know, all the time and try and help him out and stuff like that. And he shares information. It's like it is a symbiotic relationship, you know. It's like as many symbiotic relationships as you can form with people, the further you're going to go. And then that's, you know, with your business allies and your customers and everything symbiotic and everybody wins at the end. And 
you know, don't take on too much. Outsource if you can. I mean, you just laid out a beautiful vision of all these kind of decentralized but symbiotic relationships where not one person has to be the top of like yeah, mega no, mushroom corporation, no. which which exists. It does. Pool- oh, trust me. <laughs> and they hang up on you and they're rude. <laughs> but this example of all these different people mediating their own relationships, forming connections, building yeah, something. Totally. It's really the most sustainable thing. It gets me really excited because I think mycology, the mushroom industry feels really unique in that way, in that the supply chain is so yeah, open source. The supply source. chain is so tough. That's why we have a chance of small growers. Like if you look at something like corn, how are you going to get into the corn? You know, corn is corn that's a you need vast amounts of land equipment with with mushrooms you can have a shed you can have a shed right and a pressure cooker and make a business you know obviously there's a lot more to that you know you need food safety practices and stuff like that and i encourage people to look up i don't know how relevant this is across the nation but for me like uh gap practices to good agricultural practices and stuff like that um hazard plans hazard and safety plans stuff like that um is super important develop that early, develop systems early. And I think anyone can do this. I think the industry has made it seem more expensive and complicated than it is. You read books and you think you need a lot of money. You know, I read a lot of books and I thought it was like super expensive. I had to put all this money and you really don't. You just got to try and develop a system, get some mushroom buddies, Mm, get some people to make you some spawn, you know, at least outsource the spawn, make the substrate bags, outsource the spawn. There are a lot of mushroom farms that basically just focus That's on whole the business. fruiting process. Yeah, totally. Which is totally That's viable. Legit. It's legit. Yeah. yeah. It's legit. Which I think the biggest thing is it sounds like is like assess the need, your market area, exactly. learn the players in that area. And exactly. then it just never hurts you to develop your own mycology community and basically then distribution network. And that is your biggest value because then you can source whatever you need to kind of feed. That network. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's literally just trying to get a system in place that works for you and your community. Um, you know, all communities are going to have different needs. Um, all customers are going to have different needs. It's just really about positioning your business in a way where you're not working yourself into the ground and offering a good service, you know, and just doing what you want to do. You know, farmers markets are a great way to connect your community and, you know, make money. And I just I always say the CSA, though, like, I can't believe more people don't do this. Like, put it this way: the software I deal with, the lady said I was the first person ever to use their software for mushrooms only. She was confused. I was talking to her, and she was literally confused. She goes, "Where are the vegetables?" I was like, "What do you mean? These are it's a mushroom CSA." She goes, "But mushrooms are add-ons." And I'm like, "No, no, no! It's Ooh. a mushroom CSA." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh man!" So yeah, I mean, it's an untapped market. Like, walk around your neighborhood, and knock on doors, and ask people, "Do you know this?" They're gonna say no. Well, and what's really cool is I know there are folks out here on the West Coast who do like wild foraging and they basically do like a wild forage CSA. So I can see people teaming up and doing like wild forage seasonal mushrooms in the Garden State mushroom box. Another thing too that you got reminded me of, right? You don't even really need your own CSA if it's too much um, admin work for you. Find a popular CSA in your area and go to that business owner and say, hey, this is an add-on product you could offer for five bucks, whatever, 10 bucks, and then they could sell it on your behalf. That's also another valid way to offload a lot of the work. And then you're just dropping off 30 pounds to another farmer instead of dropping off a bunch of different boxes. 
there's tons of ways, man. It's uh, I love this industry. It's like I just want to see it grow. I just want to see people grow beef steak mushrooms. I hope that this helps um, somehow. I mean, I don't think like to me it's casual. I feel like I don't know. I feel like I don't know anything, but I do. So I hope it helped. <laughs> I hope the information somehow helps because it is a very specific process. Sometimes you don't always know that what you know is unique because you kind of take it for granted. So yeah, I think you've dropped definitely some gems of wisdom about beefsteak and then about the mushroom industry in general. My last thing on that is I think from like a big looking 10,000 foot above kind of economic scale, big macroeconomic scale, this could have huge implications oh, huge. because the American economy has long since stopped being like a really production-based economy. But we've always been really strong in agriculture. That's kind of our so I think you could take the emerging mushroom market as everyone gets excited, start cutting down the amount of imports and start doing that here in the US. I think that could really make a huge, huge shift economically. That's my fear, right? So I don't know if you're aware of what's happened in the shiitake industry. Farmers Fungi just recently um, mentioned it, and I'm glad he's talking about it because this has been happening for a while. I've watched it happen. Um, I've been in the industry for going on four years, and my supplier, I used to be able to buy blocks of shiitake, and now I can't. Now it's only logs. So that's where the industry has shifted into importing. And I, how do I put it in the words? It's just salespeople from overseas. You know, I got the emails. They're extraordinarily cheap. You know, it's a business decision. But if it can happen to shiitake, it can really happen to anything. Right. You know, what's stopping somebody from saying, you know what, uh, let's do it with kings or let's do this with oysters. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that by growing a new species that so far that I can tell nobody globally is growing at volume, that this could maybe be something that's like uniquely a USA thing. And you can see the obvious window then into like much bigger commercial applications, right? As vegan meat substitutes become like the thing that's that is everywhere now. Well, the first thing that popped into my head, right, last year when I brought in the beef steaks, right, so the chefs wanted a certain style of beef steak. They took the ones left over and they made jerky out of them. It was amazing. I can't put in the words. It was so good. And the first thought I had was, this is a product that no one else can make because no one else is growing this even if you go to a food importer or exporter and say i need beefsteak mushrooms they're gonna say what are you talking about i can't get that like what are you talking about so it's not something that's available at mass so it's like just a jerky application is a whole business i could just have the farm growing that and processing the beefsteak jerky and that's a whole business um we could make some type of meat product out of it um it could be served in a three ounce portion marinated um what vacuum sealed in the marinade shipped out to people refrigerated dude the shelf life is almost two weeks it's like 10 days before you got to get rid of it around the 14th day it starts to get pretty gross but in my opinion you have like six days before you have to sell it and with most mushrooms you don't have six days before you have to sell it if you don't sell it six days throw it out like oysters you have to have pre-sold basically yeah well and you got to wonder then about like yeah just applications for processing this thing yeah, reforming it a lot I think there's a I whole... had a, a CSA member, um, Justin, um, he said something about making beefsteak pastrami, which is something I never even thought of. Like, what? <laughs> you know? So it's like, think about somebody in the food space that's a creative, right? Right. You know, they get their hands on this and it's game over. I mean, you don't need Beyond Meat anymore. You can mushrooms. 
that's really exciting for me as someone who does do a vegan diet. I am mm-hmm. really sick of the like meat analog things that you don't even know what's yeah, in it. It's pretty good old monocropped products. So you're always looking for like real food and this would be a, a huge answer. Yeah. My main concern with this thing or with this mushroom is I was reading that it shouldn't be consumed in high amounts. That is my main concern. So that's why I steer near the jerky application. I don't want to butcher the word and say it wrong, but uh, oxalic acid, it contains. That's why it's sour or bitter. Um, yeah. So people with kidney problems shouldn't be consuming this. But that's really like anything. There's disclaimers behind products. That's why I think that this mushroom is best positioned in the fine dining market because you can charge a chef, let's say, 15, 20. I was selling these things 20, 25 bucks a pound. Wild. So you can sell it 15, 20 bucks a pound which is extremely more than wholesale prices on mushrooms. If you sell to restaurants at 10 to 12 a pound, that's like unheard of or amazing. Or the restaurant you're dealing with doesn't have someone that can actually give it to them for the cheap price, of, which is like eight bucks or like five bucks. So yeah, I think if it's positioned there, then it's like, this is really going to, I don't know, it's going to be huge economically. I've even thought of sushi. Like I said, last year we found our first yeah. huge one and we made jerky mm-hmm. out of it. And right when we were yeah, done, I the thought sashimi, vegan sashimi. Exactly. Dude. I don't know how to put it in the words. Like it ruined my business. That's the best way I could put it. It ruined my business because it it made me only want to grow them. And that's why I told my workers, because they shared the same excitement as me. I said, We've been building all of this up for a long time. And now all I want to do is shut everything down and grow beefsteak mushrooms. And they're like, We feel the same way. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> oh, thank <bro."> God. <laughs> I'm like, oh man. So yeah, it's it's the future. It's like, how do you put it in the words? Like, it's just eye catching, you know. It's like we grow the pink oyster because it's eye catching and pink, right? There's really no reason to grow the pink oyster other than it's it's yeah, it's delicious, but it goes old in like two but days. But beautiful colors. Yeah, beautiful colors goes old in two days. You got to sell it before you pick it, or it's like old. So it's like I think that this at least adds some of that more color to the mix of grow things, and I just want to see like solely farms of this. You know, I would be interested in helping people set up operations of this and trying to grind it away. Cause the way I look at it is like I safeguarded the information a little bit up until this point, but I don't care to do that. You know what I mean? Like what, what if I get hit by a car tomorrow? Then what? You know what I mean? Not to sound like that, but I'm just saying like, you never know what's going to happen. Like I want people to know how to do this. Is it keep it in the dark, <laughs> keep it in the dark. And the fruiting parameters like 65 degrees, 70 degrees at most. Yeah, if you go over seven degrees, it's gonna abort. And you kind of want it humid but dry. And that sounds crazy, right? But if you know anything about my taki growing, you'll know what I mean. Or king growing. You want it humid but dry. And what I mean by that is it's humid, but the air isn't necessarily saturated and there's not a lot of movement. You know, because mm-hmm. like my taki's finicky. You don't want a lot of movement. So the same thing with the beef sticks, not a lot of movement. They do not like that much humidity like that. So, uh, yeah, 65 to 70 degrees is perfect. Um, they abort like over 75. I learned it the hard way. You've laid out the process for anyone. Everything, I think. Yeah, it's basically, I, mean, I mean, you've made yeah, it. Yeah, give it a go. And that's why I'm grateful for you to come on, lay out basically the secrets of growing beefsteak here. Uh, and like I said, some gems of wisdom about starting any kind of mushroom farm. Went on some tangents and stuff here and there, but hopefully it all had value and hopefully people can apply it uh, somehow. Um, I have a lot of crazy thoughts all the time of just how um, life really never made a lot of sense to me once I left corporate world. So I kind of just wanted to exist for 
a cause. Like, I don't know how to put that in the words. Like, that's why I got behind my business. So, like, if, if I can just be in the middle of growing this product and, you know, everything else will take care of itself. And you're, you're lining yourself up with nature. That's how I put it. You're lining yourself up with nature. These things have a language. They talk, and if they're unhappy, they'll die. And if they can't breathe, their stems will grow to the ceiling. And it's a language, you know, and it teaches you patience. And there's so much about mushrooms. It's like zen. <laughs> it's like it, it tests you as a person. And, you know, everyone listens to history. They know, man. They all love mushrooms. We all love mushrooms. That's why we listen to you. And all the different topics you have, it's great. Well, I think you just elucidated really well that it does, working with mushrooms, especially in this capacity where you're intimate, hands-on, does feel like it's putting you more in alignment with that universal force that it really creates is. everything. It's like you are aligning more with it as you get more familiar with this organism and it's putting you more in tune with the natural world. And I, I know a lot of people can find yeah, themselves yeah. exactly what you Some, said. like, I don't even know how to put in the words. Like, some of us don't have a choice. That's the way I can put it. Yeah. Some of us don't have a choice. My first supplier was 123 minutes away from me. I was born 123. One of my first deliveries was um, the same distance away. Like all these one, two, three moments. Um, I'd be doing a very important inoculation as soon as I'm about to start. What time is it? It was 12.03. So a lot of uh, Mike Tyson mushrooms, right? Yeah. He sends me agar, right? Batch number 12.03. I mean, the synchronicities, it's... Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, some of us don't have a choice. Like, you can choose to ignore the synchronicities and your consciousness will eat you alive, or you can feed into it and see where it goes. And every time I've listened to it, um, it's been a roller coaster ride, but I wouldn't change it. Who follow the synchronicities, ignore synchronicity at your own peril. And I think yeah, so many people end up I working can't. with mushrooms, get the same thing, you know, I, I love that. I love that because I love hearing how somehow working with mushrooms enhances people's spiritual connection, which I think oh, is deep. I, I mean, if we really want to get deeper, I, we could get crazy. I don't like to talk about any of the crazy stuff, but I've had some moments with these things and I don't have a choice. They told me to grow them. <laughs> I don't have a choice. I literally was told grow these things. It's something that like, you know, through deep experience, I was able to have this conversation with, I guess what you could call the divine, I don't know, the mushroom wisdom. And it was just like, this is what you have to do through all these synchronicities. Now we're here. And this is what I have to do, man. If so, if you ever hear that conversation, man, listen to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, mushrooms are wise, dude. They're insanely wise. All of them, you know, not just the spiritual ones. Every single mushroom is wise and there's a lot to learn. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. This is, this has been so fun. Yeah, well, I appreciate you dropping the deep insights. I think everyone has had that experience of connecting with that more than human consciousness, and it does something. And I think that's why so many people know that is kind of our last hope to shift human societies. It's not going to come from oh, one million percent. It's not going to come from a government or a corporation or it's man. It's going to come from another organism showing us the way. One million percent. Everyone listening to this is already they know what we're talking about. <laughs> they know. They know. And if you don't know, just keep going with the mushrooms. You'll know they're so important, uh, doing so much in nature and for our health. And Well, that's beautiful, man. And actually, that gets the heart of a lot of questions I was just going to ask. So I'll run through the final three questions that I do with all my guests. And the first one is just a mushroom you love and why. And I think we've talked a lot about beefsteak. So if it's another one besides beefsteak, <laughs> a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? 
That's really hard to really, I mean, because for me in that question is multiple questions because I cultivate and I forage. So cultivating, I like kings. They're hard. They're hard to grow well. That's all I can say. They're easy to grow with giant caps, um, but to get their very thick stem, the desired thick mushroom, it's very hard. You need a high CO2 environment and you're probably going to get blotch. So that's my favorite cultivated wild. I think it's black trumpets. I really do. Oh, no, I lied to you. I'm so sorry. It is not. It is the beef boolean bolete. There we go. Boletus powder rosea. Yeah, that one is, poof. That's too good. I don't even want to say that. Hopefully, um, hopefully I don't get any flack for saying that out loud because that's a secret. <laughs> the beef boolean bolete. I had it's never heard of that. It's so good. It, it tastes like beef. It tastes like beef. Oh, See, now you're getting me to remember all these things. So me and Tug ate an unidentified bolete one time, which I don't recommend anyone to do. Do not, this is my disclaimer, do not eat unidentified mushrooms, ever. Consult somebody. And even if you consult them, make sure they know what they're talking about. Okay, yeah, so we ate an unidentified bolete before, and it was the most delicious mushroom ever. It tastes like chicken, man. We we were pretty sure on it. We thought it was like, um, Belitis flamens. That was the closest description to it in the um, uh, North American Belit book, but it wasn't that. It was something else. But it didn't have any characteristics of anything toxic, so we just tried it. it was pretty so that's my favorite one, and it's unidentified. We don't know what it is. It grows right in New Jersey, and it's probably a first. We don't know what it is. That's amazing. Dude, New Jersey. New Jersey has unidentified Belits. The the first year that I started hanging out with Tug, I brought him like two Belits that were like hard to identify or like you know no one knew there was like boletus aranta ruber which is like a um pine bolete which is like weird so those are probably my favorite ones you know kings and good old bolets dude beautiful delicious mushrooms i appreciate you sharing those and then the next question is really something i think we've hit on a lot but i usually ask people what has the relationship you've developed with fungi given to you things they've taught you spiritual experiences but if you can condense it at all uh, and remind people what what have these organisms given to you a lifestyle that's the best way i could describe it a lifestyle you're literally connected to something and you have to be responsible to that organism and give it the right environment and it reshapes the way that you view time if you screw up a mushroom farm you wait two hours to harvest something and go old so it just makes you more conscious of time. That That's probably what I got from it. It's just like the lifestyle of farming and the ability to contextualize time more. And I'm more like on time with things now. Because when, when you get into mushroom farming, you might have to pick your oysters at three in the morning. You can't say, oh, I need to sleep, wake up at seven. No, they're going to be old in four hours. So that's what I'd say the two things that it's given me a, a, a hyper awareness of time. I mean, insane changes for another organism to make in that relationship that's yeah that's yeah because once you once you waste some of your harvest you're like holy crap this is how fast these things grow it's like you go to your farm in the morning and you're like oh they're fine you get there in the afternoon they're old you're like what happened isn't it funny how another organism can change your conception of something that is so uniquely human which is like our way of time time radiation Oh, yeah, they're not following 24-hour cycle. Yeah, they're not following any of that. (laughs) That's incredible. And then the final question is, when you look forward, again, something we've talked about, when you look forward to the coming decades 
as Western modernity kind of world society develops our relationship with fungi and mushrooms more and more, how do you hope we see, or what kind of benefits do you hope we see from that? How do you hope society shifts? And this can be anything for like changing the nature of how we interact with each other, you know, whatever vision you have, how do you hope mushrooms change us? I just hope we start paying attention more. I guess that's what I could say. I don't know how it is in the West Coast, but in the East Coast, people have like seven different species of mushrooms in their front yard and don't even know about them, but then go to Whole Foods and get charged 40 bucks a pound for them. And they're in their front yard. So uh, I hope that there's just a level of awareness that's created where people really realize how much the world's trying to take care of us. Why are we paying for food? <laughs> I know that's stupid. I'm a farmer, right? But why, why are we paying for food? Um, you could live off your land, you know, the, all the different channels, you know, to get this type of education. You know, I just hope people start paying attention to that more. We stop spraying Roundup on Chicken of the Woods when we see it because we're afraid of it. And because I've seen that, I personally have seen that, and I, I just I couldn't believe it. And I'm just like, why would you do that? You could like feed yourself or sell that. I would buy that for sixty bucks, and you could pay a bill or something. You know, it's like. You know, I I paid a guy one time, I think it was like $300 for a chicken of the woods. And you couldn't believe it. And he's like, why would you give me $300 for this? I'm like, so I can sell it for 500 And it's only fair for me to give you, you know, the bigger split. And he was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, these things are valuable. So I just, I hope people see the value that just like is really underneath our feet. It's right there. No one's looking. Another really powerful insight. If we can pay more <laughs> attention and see the value yeah. underneath our feet. Of what's there, dude, us. it's there. Everything's there from wild berries to wild lovage and greens and mushrooms. It's all there. Thankfully, I think because this message is spreading far and wide, I think people are starting to realize that again. We're kind of coming back so too. to that relationship with yeah. the land. I think that the pandemic, man, and the health scare with everyone and that kind of accelerated our industry. I think it did at least. You know, yeah. I've had people that were never interested in mushrooms up until the pandemic now are interested because they read, you know, an article that said that mushrooms have anti whatever or immune boosting properties and stuff like that. So, well, hopefully it just keeps accelerating and accelerating. Jacob, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you. I mean, you went deep on mushroom cultivation you went deep on what it is to run a business spiritual implications man you covered you covered it all so thank Quite you a so bit. Much for I, didn't, I didn't mean to go i didn't mean to go off on that many tangents i tried to stick it to the beef steaks but me as a person i'm always on a tangent you know me so that was my authentic self i hope people enjoy it.